2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to go verses 1 through 15. The title of the message tonight is Suffering Fools. Because the Corinthians were used to suffering fools. Let me explain. There were wolves in Corinth. If you haven't been with us, basically there were... Jesus warned all of the churches... So the Corinthians didn't have any excuse. He warned them. He said, beware of those who come dressed up like sheep. But when you lift up the sheepskin, it's actually a wolf. There were uh, false teachers that had come in and were wreaking havoc in the church that that Paul started in Corinth. We've discovered as we've gone through uh, both of these letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that more than likely the identity of at least some of these uh, uh, false teachers, false apostles, were Judaizers. That is, those who are Christian but say, you know, Jesus is a good start, but you really need to add a lot of these other things for you to be saved. These Judaizers were were using every carnal weapon there was to discredit Paul uh, so that they could discredit his gospel, so that they could come along and say, well, you know, Paul said it was like this, but it's really like this. Here were some of the things they were saying about the Apostle Paul, who actually founded this church. Here's one. He's not a real apostle. Here's another. His, his letters are weighty, but he's an unimpressive speaker, which in Corinth was a big deal because this was a Greek city. Uh, oration, sophistry, a lot of big words were, were important to them. Here's another thing they'd say. Well, also, he doesn't have one of these nifty letters of commendation that we have. We bring these letters wherever we go, and it proves that we are official, that we are uh, sent by someone in authority. Well, last Thursday, Paul started to take the gloves off with these guys. Tonight, he's actually going to land some blows. So let's start by backing up just a couple verses to get our context a little bit here. Chapter 10, look at verse 17, the last two verses of chapter 10. Paul says, again, these guys were bragging on themselves a lot. He said, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul says at the end of that chapter, look, these guys, these false teachers, they can tell you how great they are. They can spend all their time talking themselves up and me down. They can commend themselves all they want. They can show their little letters But the only thing that matters, Paul says, is what the Lord says about them and about you and about me. So that's our setting. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. In that chapter, chapter 11, it's the first of, of many times you're going to see the word folly or foolishness. In this chapter... And really, through the end of the book, Paul is basically saying this. Okay, guys, you in Corinth, let me speak to you in a language you will understand. Foolishness. He says, I'm going to talk some foolishness, and you guys should be used to that. He says, because you put up with it all the time with these false teachers. Look at verse 4. He says, you put up with a foolish gospel. You you put up with them talking, telling you about another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Look down at verse 20. It gets worse. He basically says, you're putting up with these guys abusing you. He says, Paul says to these Corinthians, you have shown your great ability to suffer fools. So now it's my turn. 
Chapter 11, verse 1, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. In other words, if I could speak like these guys are speaking, and then he says, and indeed, you do bear with me. I think what he means is, like it or not, here it comes. I'm going to begin to speak with you in that language you will understand. And you'll see in this chapter a lot of sarcasm with Paul. But first, Paul explains his motives. Let me give you an outline real quick if you're interested. Verses 1 through 4, Paul's going to explain his motives. Verses 5 through 12, Paul will examine his own ministry compared to the ministry of these false teachers. And then in verses 13 to 15 tonight, he will expose these false teachers. He will drop the sarcasm altogether and say, this is really who these guys are. Look with me at verse 2. Paul will explain now his motives. Basically, he's saying, before I get foolish, before I get sarcastic, let me explain to you why I am so passionate about this. Verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul's basically saying, look, the reason I'm going to say the foolish things I'm getting ready to say, the reason that you Corinthians drive me batty sometimes, verse 2, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. You guys know that, right? There's such a thing as a good jealousy. There is such a thing as a godly jealousy. Exodus 20, verse 5, the Lord says, I, basically the reason you should not uh, go and worship idols, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now understand, it's not an insecure, selfish, vicious kind of jealousy that ruins so many relationships in this world. But this kind of jealousy, a godly jealousy, Jealousy, this is a great thing. Think about it. God says, basically, I am jealous for you. I don't want to share you. I don't want to share you with a false God that will ruin you. See, the reason that God demands no idolatry is that idolatry is always a step away from him, which is never good for you. Idolatry is always adultery toward God, and it's always harmful to us. See, that's the kind of godly jealousy that Paul expresses here, and we'll see more of it as we go. Verse 2, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Back in the days of arranged marriages, a loving father would betroth his daughter to the very best young man that he could find. How many, how many of you fathers with daughters would prefer that? Yeah? The betrothal would last a year, and it was binding. There was, it was basically an engagement, but it was a done deal. There was no sexual contact between the, the future wife and the future husband, but it was a very firm thing. And I don't know if you remember, but back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me read verse 15 to you. Paul says to these same Corinthians, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul's argument back then was, look, these guys are trying to lead you astray. You might have 10,000 great speakers, but you've only got one dad in, in this thing that's called the gospel. Basically, 
I'm the one who came and birthed this church for Jesus um, and his kingdom. So basically, Paul is, takes on the role here of a loving father. Let, let me paint the picture for you. In verse 2, Paul is the father and the church is the bride, right, who has been betrothed to whom? The bridegroom, which is Christ. And by the way, you can't find a better bridegroom. So, you fathers, especially if you have daughters, put yourself now in Paul's place. You've betrothed your daughter to the perfect groom. And until the groom comes to sweep your daughter off her feet, you are responsible for her chastity. And all of a sudden, some punk, some thug, comes around your daughter saying stuff like this. Hey, baby, I got something better for you. Your dad doesn't get it. I mean, I can make you happier than that other groom ever could. Just come on, run away with me. Dads, how long would it take you to buy a shotgun? And just, <laughs> and just leave it there prominently right by the door. See, that's what Paul's basically saying here. That's why he says, I'm so passionate. He says, don't mess with my little girl. That is godly jealousy. But I want you to notice something else before we move on. Look at verse 2. It says, For I am jealous for you, Corinthians, with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you as a father to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Anybody else going, wait a second. Chaste virgin? Corinth? Can you say those in the same sentence? What was Corinth known for? They were famous for sexual immorality, adultery, divorce, uh, lawsuits among the brethren, terrible behavior at uh, the Lord's Supper. Maybe, maybe Paul had a brain freeze and he really thought he was writing to the Ephesians here. No. I think he knows he's talking to the Corinthians. And yet Paul says, this is my aim, to present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. How awesome is that? I mean, if Paul still had hope that he could present to Christ the Corinthian church as a chaste virgin, when the, when the church walked down the aisle to Christ, there is hope for you and me. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's awesome. That means no matter what you've done, you can still walk down the aisle in white. See, that's why Paul is so passionate here. Verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He says in verse 3, As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. That's one of the themes of this chapter that you'll see is basically this. Our enemy is subtle. He is beguiling. He works by enticing. You guys know the story. The enemy did not pop up in the garden and say to Eve, I demand you eat that fruit. You'll do what I say. Eat that fruit. You think Eve would have fallen for that? It's like, who are you? I have a God who loves me. No, he wasn't that 
outward. He was beguiling. He was enticing. He was subtle. He was slick. By the way, he didn't look like a a serpent. We're going to see that as we go. He didn't look like what you think of when you think of a snake. But he was slick. He said stuff like this. Hey, Eve, look at this fruit. Man, it's beautiful to look at, isn't it? Now has... Let me understand this, Eve. Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I mean, is God holding something back from you? Interesting. Says stuff like, you won't surely die. Maybe God doesn't, maybe he doesn't want your eyes to be open so that you'll be like him. I'm just saying. You ever watch a movie where you know the bad guy is the bad guy, but the damsel doesn't know the bad guy is the bad guy, and you want to yell at the screen, don't you hear all those S's? Run! That's what Paul's doing right here. Verse 3, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The word corrupted there means to lead away. See, these false teachers were leading the Corinthians away from, what's it say? The simplicity that is in Christ. We need to have our ears tuned to where whenever we hear anything that draws us away from the simplicity that is in Christ, we recognize it for what it is, which is the hiss of a serpent. The gospel is simple. Jesus died in my place that I might live forever with him. He loved me that much, and he died so that I didn't have to suffer the consequences of my own sin, and I could live with him forever. Now, when someone comes along and says, oh, listen, we believe in Jesus too, but you have to be baptized in our church to get to heaven. When someone says you have to be circumcised, when someone says you won't go to heaven unless you obey our Sabbath, when, even when they say God's not really happy with you unless you read 30 minutes a day, or if they say it's really great that you're a Christian, but I mean if you really want to be spiritual, the beauty of Christ is in his simplicity. Maybe some of you have heard of the theologian Karl Barth. He apparently wrote one of the the most amazing uh, commentaries on the book of Romans. He had a tremendous grasp of the scriptures. He studied for many years, did a lot of speaking engagements. One day someone asked him, what's the greatest theological discovery? What's the greatest theological thought you've ever had in your life? He waited for a while, thought about it, and came up with this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's really that simple. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he wants to walk with you through your daily experience. And anyone who tells you that you have to jump through a lot more hoops than that is leading you astray. Now understand, we study the Bible. This is good. This is a good thing that we are doing. But if I were to say to you, you know what? You can't be saved unless you're here Thursdays and Sundays. I... People might show up more, I don't know. But it wouldn't be the simplicity of Christ. Look at verse 4. 
For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different gospel which you have not received, or a different, oh, excuse me, a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul says this. This is my fear. Here's my fear, is that you guys put up with all sorts of foolishness. So someone comes in and, and says to you, oh, we believe in Jesus, and you don't question any more than that. Basically, you're so tolerant, you're so gullible, you don't bother to check. Paul was impressed by the Bereans. Remember that? And he, he came into to Berea and read the scriptures to them, teached on them, and they were like, wow, this is really good. He comes back the next day and they're like, hey, we checked that out. That's, that's true. He wasn't offended. He didn't say, what? I'm the Apostle Paul. Don't you believe me? No, he was very impressed that they actually read the scriptures to check him out. The question we have to ask is, wait, is this the same Jesus that Paul preaches? Right? That's all of the cults. They look a lot like Christianity. The cults vary on basically who is Jesus. Is he this one, the one that Paul preaches? God, he's God who became flesh, co-equal with the Father, but who came in the form of a man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a perfect atoning death. He was raised on the third day. All of it is the one that when someone comes and, and they want to tell you about Jesus and take you maybe deeper, are they talking about the same Jesus? Or is he, for instance, as the Mormons preach, the spirit brother of Lucifer. Mormonism teaches that Jesus and Lucifer and all the demons and all of us are actually spirit brothers and sisters. That we are born in the spirit world as spirit babies to our man God, heavenly father, and his goddess wives. Is that the same Jesus? No. Is he the biblical Jesus or is he the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, which is a created being, that is a reincarnation of Michael the archangel. Paul says, basically, it's foolishness. He's talking to the Corinthians. It's foolish what you guys will put up with. And even crazier, Paul says, that you won't listen to me. Look at verse 5. He says, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Remember verses 1 through 4, Paul was explaining his motives. He's saying, this is why I'm so passionate about this. I'm jealous for you. Now in verse 5, he begins now to examine his ministry. He will co contrast it with those who are t attacking him in, uh, in Corinth. Verse 5 again. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. The word consider there is logizomai. It means to reckon, to compute, to calculate. Paul says, look, I honestly assess that I am not inferior to these most eminent apostles. If you, if you know the Greek, there's definitely starting to creep in some godly sarcasm here. This is part of, remember, Paul says, he tells us up front, I'm going to talk some foolishness. When he says most eminent, the word there is hooper leon. And hooper is kind of the place we get the word super. It means above and beyond. And leon means greatly, exceedingly, beyond measure. So really, this is a fairly fair uh, translation, these super-duper apostles. He says, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to these super-duper apostles. That's, they'll tell you that. Verse 6, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. 
remember this is a recurring criticism. They would say things like this about Paul. Well, Paul isn't eloquent like we are, the super-duper apostles. He's not trained in the Greek art of sophistry. He's really got no charisma, no eloquence, no slick presentation. Paul says, look, okay, you got me. I may be untrained in speech, yet not in knowledge. We actually know Paul had an amazing education, and he also knew the scriptures backward and forward. And he says, look, okay, maybe my language skills aren't as pretty as some of these other guys. He says, but we've been, look at the end of verse 6, thoroughly manifested among you in all things. You guys know what that word manifest. We've seen that quite a bit. It means basically completely transparent. He says, with me, what you see is what you get. With my detractors, what you see is what they want you to see. Now, warning, verse 7, more sarcasm ahead. He says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of, gospel of God to you free of charge? Let me give you the background. In cultured Greek cities, Corinth was one of them, they actually had paid orators. I think they were actually part of the, the uh, tax roll. There were like maybe two or three guys that would be paid by the city to give speeches. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians that the church paid Peter, the apostle Peter, and even paid the way for his family. Um, they, these Corinthians, basically, it sounds like they wanted to pay people so that they could show everybody, you know, you know how much we pay for this guy? <laughs> that kind of thing. Paul never took a dime from these Corinthians, and they were wealthy. He never took a dime from the Corinthians, but it was, that was not so with the false apostles. They were like, they would come in. A lot of preachers would come in specifically because, oh, there's a wealthy city. We'll get a good offering here. Paul never took a dime, but these guys would go and fleece the flock regularly. But check this out. This is how slick these false teachers were. This is how they explained it. I mean, how do you, how do you come to when somebody says, hey, now why does... Paul not take an offering, but you take one like three times during a message. This is how they spin it. Oh, well, the reason Paul doesn't take your money is he knows down in his heart he's not a real apostle. You know, he's not a professional like we are. Paul's just kind of an amateur. If he were a professional, he would take your money like we do. Man, these guys are slick. And Paul says, okay, let me understand this right. Verse 7, was that a sin? Did I, did I do something wrong here? Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Am I doing something wrong here? Verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. <laughs> now, you need to understand, that's a figure of speech. Bob didn't actually rob other churches. Don't imagine Paul smashing out the windows of the church in Philippi. Let's see, I've got to get enough to, to minister in Corinth. No. The Philippians gave willingly. Actually, we see that in verse 9. He says, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And we know from Philippians chapter 4, these Macedonians were probably from the church at Philippi. They were basically saying, we want to help. Paul, we want to support you in the ministry. Uh, one of the teachers that I, I listened to earlier this week said that um, 
perhaps Paul's M.O. was he never took money from the church while he was uh, there for, for lack of misunderstanding. But if they wanted to send money ahead to the next church, maybe perhaps that's when he would accept it. But you know the phrase, robbing Peter to pay Paul? Paul says, well, I robbed Philippi to pay to provide for Corinth because you Corinthians were robbing Paul to pay Peter. Continuing verse 9, he says, And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself in the future, he says, verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Paul's been talking a lot about foolish boasting. He says, basically, this is one thing that I will not stop boasting about. The fact that I never took a dime from you, he says to the Corinthians. Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Maybe they were twisting this again. Oh, well, Paul loves you like we do. He would take your money. Paul says, is the reason that I don't take money from you really because I don't love you? He basically says, God knows the answer to that question And you should too. He says, verse 12, here's the reason. But what I do, I will also continue to do. I won't stop not taking money from you, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul says, listen, the reason I won't take your money is because I've discovered it's a great way to expose the motives of these false Apostles. So this is a great way that we can distinguish ourselves from these snakes. Paul says, I'm willing to get my hands dirty, to work hard, to make tents, so that I can deliver the gospel free of charge. I can do it as a free gift, just like my Lord gave for me. Paul says, and something that's beautiful is I've discovered my detractors, all the guys that you're listening to, they won't cross that line. I mean, they'll, they'll say a lot of nice things about themselves, but when you ask them to actually do something for free, I don't think so. See, they have to be paid to serve the Lord. That's Paul's point. They are professional ministers, and he doesn't mean that in a good way. The Bible calls someone who has to be paid to serve the Lord a hireling. A shepherd is one who is willing to lay down his life For the sheep. A hireling just works for a paycheck. Now, Paul has told us already in the first letter, there's nothing wrong with accepting a paycheck. He he just showed us he accepted one from Philippi. But here's the point. If that's a minister's reason to minister, then he's just a hireling. He's not a shepherd. You guys are thinking, yeah, don't forget that. Wait a second. What's our principle? You guys are ministers as well. If you know the Lord Jesus, we are this what we're doing right now is I am equipping the saints for the ministry. Every single one of you is a minister. So let me ask you. Do you have to be paid to serve? If you serve in our church, that's easy answer. <laughs> Nobody gets paid. <laughs> but let me let me put it this way. Maybe for you The payback, the payoff, is the praise of men. Maybe you think, well, I'd I'd serve on the worship team where there's lots of people looking, but I'd never serve on setup. 
I mean, what's the payoff there? Or I'll serve as long as I can get a thank you. Or as long as I get a little power or a little bit control. Paul says, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel for free because, number one, that's what Jesus did for me. But number two, it exposes these hirelings for who they really are. So you're going to see now the gloves are really coming off. Verse 13. For such, no more sarcasm here. For such are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Wow. That's pretty direct. Can you imagine? No doubt some of these false teachers are in here, in, in the room while they're reading this. I mean, that's quite a drop in stature for these guys in the last few verses. Verse 5, they were super-duper apostles. And now... They are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Paul drops the sarcasm and exposes these guys. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. He says, look, they look just like apostles of Christ, but it's really just a great makeup job. It's really just a good costume. Steven Spielberg would be jealous of their makeup department. But you say, well, that can't be. These guys are so nice. They're, they're so gentle. Well, Paul says, verse 14, it's no wonder. Don't be surprised. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. We refer to it at the beginning. The serpent didn't used to crawl on his belly. Remember, that was part of the curse. Eve was not seduced by a slithering, scary snake. He looked good. He must have looked like an angel of light. Verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, then it says, whose end will be according to their works. See, it would be a lot easier if the false prophets would knock on your door and they actually had cloven hooves and horns. And they said, I'd like to sit down with you and deceive you, lead you away from Jesus. They don't do that. They're very polite. They're very well-versed. They wear a nice shirt and a tie. Sometimes they ride a bike. When they ride bikes, they even save the environment. The point is, you can't go by outward appearance or even the Christianese they're speaking. I mean, does the things they're saying just sound good or does it actually line up with the Bible? If they are false apostles, Paul says their end will be according to their works. Let me just close with this it's a rather abrupt close, but... He says, those, these false apostles, about the worst thing you can say, to, say about them, their end will be according to their works. Just a reminder, that's the worst thing you could wish on someone, is that their end would be according to their works. I certainly don't want my end to be according to my works. 
Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. If our end is according to our works, we will end up in hell. Do you guys get it? It's such a wonderful thing for us to dwell upon as we close tonight. Your end, if you know Jesus, your end will not be according to your works. It will be according to his finished work on the cross, according to his grace. I'm so thankful that God suffers fools like me. That he makes us righteous, that he makes us fit for heaven.